Dan Heath and his brother Chip have written four New York Times bestselling books. Hi, it's Dustin Burleson. And I'm glad you're here for another episode of The Burleson Box. You've probably read one of these best-selling books by Chip and Dan Heath. Made to stick. Switch. Decisive and the power of moments. Dan Heath is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports entrepreneurs fighting for social good. The Heath Brothers' books have sold over 3 million copies worldwide. In today's interview, we'll look at Dan Heath's latest book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. It's a great book. I hope you enjoy it. Let's dig in on another episode of The Burleson Box. last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement. Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. Dan, I'm honored to have you here. Uh, I think I stumbled across your first book, uh, Made to Stick, that you co-wrote with your brother years ago, maybe a decade ago, and uh, just fell in love with the way you guys think and write. So we're just so honored to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, In your latest book, Upstream, you say, quote, we get stuck in this cycle of response. We put out fires, we deal with emergencies, we stay downstream, handling one problem after another, but we never make our way upstream to fix the systems that cause the problems, end quote. My question, why do you think it's so easy to get stuck downstream? Let me start, if I may, with the, the parable that starts the book, because I want to understand, I want uh, the listeners to understand the origin of this word upstream, and then um, I'll come right back to that question. So the book opens with a parable that's pretty well known in public health. It's sometimes attributed to Irving Zola, a sociologist, and it goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic on the side of a river, and just as you've spread out your your tablecloth to sit down, you hear a sound from the river, and you look behind you, and there's a kid struggling in the water, apparently drowning. And so you and your friend just instinctively dive in and grab the kid, bring them to shore. And just as your adrenaline is starting to recede a bit, you hear another scream, and you turn around, it's another kid drowning. So Right back in the river you go and you fish that kid out. And no sooner have you gotten back to shore that you hear some more screams. And this time it's two kids. And, and so begins a kind of revolving door of rescue. And, and you're starting to get a little bit worn out. And all of a sudden you see your friend swimming toward the shore and stepping out as if to leave you alone. And you say, hey, where are you going? I, I can't do this alone. This is an emergency, all these kids. 
and your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. <laughs> and I think that, in a nutshell, is what this book is about. It's, it's about, as you said, this cycle of reaction that we find ourselves slipping into organizationally, personally, even in society as a whole. And the question is, well, I guess there's two questions. One is, why does that happen? And the second thing is, what can we do about it? So you would ask the why question. Why do we get stuck on this, in this cycle of response? And I think the number one force there, our enemy, is something called tunneling. And I should acknowledge this is a, a word that I'm borrowing from a couple of psychologists in a book called Scarcity, which is a really great book if you're interested in um, psychological work. And they define tunneling as, as follows. They say, when people are suffering a scarcity of, of resources or time, and they're juggling a bunch of problems, in a sense, they give up trying to solve all the problems systematically. And they even give up trying to prioritize them. It just becomes tunnel vision. Just imagine yourself in a tunnel. And when you're in a tunnel, it's like the only direction is forward. There's no strategic thought. There's no systems thinking. It's just, what can I do to get past this problem to get to the next one? And so tunneling is basically a trap that, that forces us to stay in the short term. I'll give you an example. There was some academic research done by a woman named Anita Tucker who followed around a bunch of nurses. And she found nurses, as, as you'd well expect, are professional problem solvers in essence. They're always dealing with things that pop up unexpectedly. And uh, So just to give you some examples, sometimes it was trivial stuff like they ran out of towels and so they'd have to go steal some towels from another unit on the floor. Sometimes it was more serious stuff. Like Anita Tucker writes about this one nurse who was trying to check out a new mother who just had a baby and ready to take the baby home, but they couldn't find the security anklet that was supposed to go around the baby's ankle to keep it safe. And you can't check out a baby without that. So they did a frantic search, eventually turned up the anklet in the baby's bassinet. So check, they were able to get the mother uh, on her way. And then about three hours later, the same problem happens again. Different mother, different baby, anklets missing. This time they can't find it, and so they have to go through a whole other protocol to get the mother uh, checked out. And Anita Tucker said, from one perspective, this is really resourceful behavior. These nurses had a way of, of just dealing with the stuff that came up. You know, they were scrappy. They were resourceful. They didn't go running to the boss every time something went wrong, and they took pride in that. And so from one perspective, that's an inspirational portrait of nurses. From another perspective, though, this is the description of an organization that never learns. And, and by virtue of that, it's the description of an organization that never improves. And what I mean is, if you've evolved a culture where workarounds are the norm, what it dooms you to, by definition, if you're not solving problems you're going to face the same problems the next week, the next month, the next year. And so that's the fundamental trap of tunneling, is once we have to narrow our focus to these emergencies, to these rescues, to these workarounds, it deprives us of the system thinking that we would need to be able to perform more effectively next month. How true that is in, in our business as we've grown. Uh, we started with no patients and one location to multiple locations and 12,000 active patients, I felt like my, I was chief fire putter outer <laughs> running from, <laughs> uh, you know, narrow focus, tunnel vision problem to tunnel vision problem. 
Uh, I, the book is filled with great examples and research. I, I love the book. I love all your books. And they're not, they're not just your opinion. They're based on the literature. They're based on science. Uh, talk about how we can shift away from this constant fire putter out or what you call shifting from reaction to prevention. Yeah. And this is in some ways the essence of the book is how do we pivot away from tunneling toward, um, you know, what I'm calling upstream thinking. And I think there's a couple of different answers. I think the short-term answer is this is really hard and you're not alone if you find it hard. I mean, virtually every function, every industry I talk to feel like they're in this trap of putting out fire. So you are not alone. Let me start there. I think in the short term, you can you can almost force some systems thinking in structural ways. So let me, let me explain what I mean. Like in a lot of health systems, they've started using what they call safety huddles, where maybe a bunch of nurses and doctors and staffers get together for 20 minutes every morning at the same time. And the meeting's agenda is, number one, to review what happened the day before. You know, were there any near misses where someone was almost hurt or someone almost got the wrong medication? Uh, and they talk about why that happened and what can be done to fix those problems. And number two, they look ahead to the current day and they say, is there anything on the schedule today? It's a little unusual, a little more complex, something that we should put our heads together about. And notice that that, that is a way of forcing people out of their tunnels for just a brief period of the day. You know, Chances are, as soon as that meeting is over, they go right back into those tunnels. But at least for those 20 minutes, they've been allowed to step outside and say, hey, how could we do better? And, and what are the things that are plaguing us? And, and back to that Anita Tucker research on nurses, notice that the safety huddle would have been the perfect time for people to, to hear from that nurse who said, you know what? Twice yesterday, I had those anklets fall off babies. Like, what can we do about this? Is this a product issue? Are we not putting them on tight enough? Or are they stretching out? What's the deal? And then somebody would have been nominated to take charge of it. And that would give you hope that that learning was possible and improvement was possible. So I think in the short term, you can kind of shoehorn in to your process, you know, some forum where people can surface these recurring problems. I think in the long run, what you're really angling for is, is a learning organization. And if if that idea gets you excited. I mean, you can start certainly with the book that's in your hands. You've already got uh, my book upstream, which is about a lot of this thinking. It, it, if you start thinking, hey, I, I want to do the deep dive on this, check out the work of a guy named Steve Spear, who writes about organizations where workarounds have basically become extinct, if you can believe such a thing. So he, he looks at organizations like Toyota or like the Navy and certain um, high-skill operations where the culture has evolved in a way where people are always thinking if something went wrong, something must be wrong with the system. One of my favorite quotes is every system is perfectly designed to get the result it gets. That's from Paul Batalden, a healthcare expert. And, and what I love about that is the fact that it makes it so clear. If you keep bumping into the same problems with, with an employee, with, um, with a procedure, um, with your business, what it tells you is there's something systemically wrong. And and until we fix things at the systems level, we're doomed to experience them at the problem level. You're right. We have a friend and con fellow consultant that reminds his employees, uh, I hired you for not just your body, but your brain as well, right? And yeah. Not just to, to run the system that we 
put in front of you, but to question it, mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. in healthcare, those, those uh, safety huddles and ask, you know, why is this problem recurring? I know you work with a lot of firms uh, throughout the world and you've spoken all over the world. Um, if we, if we look at a, a bigger context, what are some things you see smart companies doing, not just to fix day-to-day issues, but to really build a competitive advantage that can be sustained? I think this learning point is, is critical. Like, let, let me give you an example. One of the stories in the book is about LinkedIn. And so we all know LinkedIn because we probably got our profiles on there. But, you know, LinkedIn makes a lot of money by selling subscriptions to corporations. You know, imagine that you're a recruiter at um, Microsoft. And so you use LinkedIn to, to find new employees and stuff. So these subscriptions... If you're running a subscription business, whether that's Netflix or you know selling Sports Illustrated subscriptions, what you care about more than anything is the churn rate. How many of your customers stay with you, you know, year to year, and how many um, uh, leave you? And so at LinkedIn, they were monitoring the churn rate. And traditionally, their approach when a customer was approaching a renewal date was to kind of send in the troops to make sure in that last month you were super happy with them and you were excited about renewing. And so they had kind of a, a savior mental model, like right before the renewal, we're going to swoop in and, and, and lock in the business. And some of the people on the team started playing around in the data and they realized something astonishing that when they looked historically at the data, they found that there were certain indicators that in the first four weeks of a subscription, so you're Microsoft, you're a recruiter, you sign up for LinkedIn. They found that within the first, first four weeks, they could accurately diagnose who was going to renew after a year and who wasn't. And so at first they were scratching their heads saying, how could, how could you possibly know that early after one month that the whole year is going to go right or go wrong? And so they started studying it a bit more and they eventually figured out the deal was people either quickly got up to speed, got up the learning curve, and started deriving value from LinkedIn in the first month, or they likely never did. And so they have this aha moment where they say, okay, why don't we shift a lot of these resources that we're throwing into saving the accounts, you know, in quotes, in the 11th month up to the first month to make sure that people are properly onboarded. And what happens as a result of this is in maybe a year or two, they managed to cut the churn rate in half, even as the business is absolutely exploding. And when I say cut the churn rate in half in a business the size of LinkedIn, I mean, we're talking about tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in profit that are the result of this work. And so if you kind of step out of that story and, and poke at it a little bit, you, you notice there's a couple things going on. Number one, there's a culture where people get curious about problems like that. You know, that this was not an assignment. You know, the CEO of LinkedIn didn't come in and say, hey, figure out how we can diagnose when people are likely to churn. It was just somebody on the team had the idea, hey, I'm kind of curious about this. And they went poking around and found something interesting. And number two, notice that they're using data as a way to guide their progress and their learning rather than as a tool for judgment. I have a friend, Joe McCannon, who's a, who's a healthcare expert, and he has this great distinction. He says, we should use data for learning, not data for inspection. <laughs> and I think so often in the business world, we fall into the inspection trap. You know, And inspection sounds like this. Okay, Heath, your, your sales numbers were down last quarter. You're down 12%. What are you going to do about it, buddy? 
or you know your expenses were up 12%. What what are you going to do to to bring that in and it's like you're being judged with the data. I think in organizations that are really good at at improving and stamping out problems, it's kind of the opposite. It's like everybody is is entrusted to use the data and everybody looks at it the same way, but there's no sense of of you know having your knuckles wrapped. It's more like the the data becomes the scoreboard for the game you're playing. And it becomes kind of fun when you win a victory as a team, when you start to see that churn rate nudge down, when you've transferred resources from the 11th month to the first. It's like everybody can kind of see it the same way. And, and so no one's standing over their shoulder saying, you better get that churn rate down 5% in the next month or else something bad's going to happen. It's more like there's a natural curiosity, there's a natural desire to win, and there's a, a shared set of data that they can use to navigate. You're right. It's really a mindset, this idea of, of going upstream. And I'll, and I'll echo, we see the same data in, in this world. So in the coaching consulting world uh, of Burleson Seminars and the product that these members are listening to, our average member retention rate is right around three years and about 85% stick that long. Hmm. That's pretty darn good. Thing. Yeah. We, 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 your book is like, you know, it's, it's so accurate in that a member who will get a quick win in the first month, who will actually do something, show up to a call, um, download a resource, uh, reach out to us uh, via support, they're much more likely to stick uh, long term. And so uh, I think it's interesting as one of the smartest firms that I'm aware of, we do a lot of work with the Disney Institute, Disney Plus signed up, I think 7 million people in their first day of their new streaming service, Oh wow! uh, which I was more than happy to get involved with and see uh, what happens once you sign up within a week. Uh, there was a questionnaire of the first thing I watched, which was a documentary series with uh, Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to know what what else I might be interested in or or what else I've already watched and how often. Uh, and I think obviously because the more that user is engaged quickly in the process, uh, the more likely they'll stick long-term rather than quit their subscription next month. So, Well, I, um, I'll give you a more micro example. I had a... Uh, I had a medical procedure done uh, recently, nothing nothing too serious, but uh, I was struck by the fact that uh, many times, both before and after the procedure, the doctor was texting me with kind of just-in-time information. It was like before the procedure, it was like reminding me what to do and what not to do. After the procedure, it was telling me you know, what to expect, what kind of side effects are common and not to worry about, what kinds of things you can do um, to ease pain if you're having it and so forth. And and at the time, I remember thinking, wow, this is, I mean, this is pretty nifty. I'd never had an experience like that before as a patient. And and it felt very, very personal, even though I know it 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 couldn't it had to be a system. It still felt personal to me because it was it's like it was speaking to me with the right information in the right moment. And then later, I think because I was writing this book upstream, it struck me there's kind of a double agenda here. Like on one hand, I'm benefiting from this as a patient, but I'm also envisioning that doctor by doing this has has probably decreased the number of of calls he's getting by 90%, you know, because he knows over time what's going to happen and what people are going to complain about and what people are worried about and what anxieties they have. And so by being proactive about it and by creating this this kind of nifty, um, well-structured communications plan, he's solving his own problems. And so it's like I kind of admired it from two sides, the empathy as a patient, but also the the business acumen for this uh, physician. And and probably easy, easy to imagine, echoing your prior point, that 
a physician or a group of physicians who ask their frontline employees uh, their best advice on how to solve these problems is much more likely to lead to that result, right? No, uh, and, and in fact, you, you just said something really important, which is to get serious about solving any kind of organizational problem, that, that is not a, a one-person job. That is not the boss's job. It's a team job. And until you get the team assembled, uh, you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, one of the most common themes in my research, and we're, we're kind of n- focusing narrowly a bit on organizations in this interview, but the book is, is full of stories of cities fighting homelessness and countries fighting teenage substance abuse and people working to prevent school shootings and, you know, really big thorny stuff. And, and one of the most common themes across all those situations was that um, the people surrounded the problem is what I call it, which, which means that for any given problem, there's, there's multiple constituents, there's multiple people who have visibility on that problem. And if you can get them aligned around the problem, those, those perspectives and the diversity of perspectives can really help you figure out what's going on, what leverage points are available to you, and where you can intervene to keep that problem from happening. And so in, in the perspective of one organization, that's pretty simple. It just means you want everybody from the receptionist to, uh, to the nurse or the hygienist to the staffers. I mean, you want them all kind of looking at it at the same time. And you never know what, what knowledge is latent there that, that may not have been tapped. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio. But maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or Go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now back to the program. I want to highlight uh, something you said earlier and maybe unpack it a little bit more because it's so important. This, um, and I'll misquote the quote, but the idea that that digging into information for information's sake or looking really at what I call lagging indicators, you know, last month's sales report, Mm -hmm. last month's conversion report. Uh, quarterly sales year over year, leaping to something up more upstream, looking at the value we create and engaging our teams to help with that. Uh, you know, it goes back to the parable at the very beginning. I mean, yeah, we can keep jumping in the river and saving the kids, or we can finally go upstream and stop the guy who's throwing them in the river. Yeah. Uh, can, can you talk about some of your advice, like, you know, what you want readers to walk away from seeing differently in their jobs in the world? I tell you what, I- I think maybe the best thing I could do, I, I want to tell a story. It'll take me a couple minutes to tell. It's a little bit complicated, but but I feel like afterwards, I want to point back at the story with some lessons that I think would be useful for, for anybody. So this is one of my favorite stories. It's about the Chicago Public School District. And in 1997, they were failing about half of their kids. I mean, no joke. The graduation rate at CPS was 52%. 
So if you were a teenager in Chicago, you had a coin flips chance of graduating. And it had been like this for so long that people almost took it for granted, which is something in the book I call problem blindness, which says you can't fix a problem if you can't see it or if you've habituated to it. And I think we see this in all aspects of life where if we just are are submerged in a problem for long enough, we kind of lose our visibility. And so people at CPS, it's not that they were proud of having a 52% graduation rate. They knew it was terrible, but they just assumed, well, that's the way the world is. You know, we're trying our best and these kids just have complicated lives and and maybe their K through eight education wasn't all that it should be. And so shrug, what are we going to do about it? And so here's what happened to change that. Number one, they found that they could get early warning of who was at risk of dropping out. Some academics did some research that found that in the ninth grade, four years before graduation, in the ninth grade, you could predict with 80% accuracy who was going to drop out and who was going to graduate. And it was based on two metrics. The first was, did the student complete five full-year course credits, basically a normal course load? And two, did they fail more than one core course, like English, math, science? It was okay. It didn't put you off track to fail one, but if you failed two, you were in trouble. And so for the first time, they, they have the ability to foresee where the problem's going to be. Remember that LinkedIn story. You can foresee what's going to happen down the line, uh, and it gives you the chance to do something different. And so they put together all these measures to change those students' destinies who were off track. So let me give you two examples of what they did. One was they changed some of their policies that were self-sabotaging. Like at the time, this was the the tough on discipline era. And so it was routine for kids who were in, you know, maybe a, a hallway scuffle, a couple of kids push each other, maybe a punch is thrown. Both of them would be suspended for two weeks. It was just like doling out candy, a two-week suspension. And the research shows if you take a kid who's kind of on the borderline you toss them out of school for two weeks, and they come back, they're lost, and, and they, don't, they don't get back on track. So what they never knew was that a two-week suspension might well be the thing that tips a student from graduating to not graduating. It's literally that extreme. The other thing they did was they started to actively collaborate in the ninth grade to tilt people who were off track back on track. So they had all the teachers meet on, on a biweekly basis, and they would go name by name and talk about, okay, Michael, what are his grades like? Okay, he's failing algebra right now, but we still got time to bring that up. We've got three more quizzes to come. How can we get him some more support? Okay, um, what about Keyshawn? Well, he's got to take his, his sister to elementary school every morning, and so he's always showing up late. Well, if he's got to be late every morning, let's make sure that class is PE and not math because we don't want him to fail math. That's a core course. And they start to to collaborate on a weekly basis to nudge these kids back on track. And what happens is the kids start coming more, their attendance goes up, their grades start to go up, their on-track measures in the ninth grade start to go up. And four years later, they start graduating in higher and higher numbers until last year, the graduation rate was 78, 79%. Wow. It, it went up 25 points in, in probably 15 years, which it would be hard to overstate the difficulty of a change like that in an organization the size of Chicago Public Schools. I mean, this is a $6 billion district, which is the same uh, amount of money as the entire budget of the city of Seattle. So 
If you think about that story through the lens of upstream thinking, what does it tell you? It tells you a couple of things. Number one, if you've got a recurring problem, a great way to get leverage on it is to find a way to detect it early. That was the LinkedIn story. That's the Chicago story. It, it buys you some runway to affect the outcome. The second thing is, you know, let's go back to that notion of surrounding the problem to get everybody looking at data in the same way. So at CPS, you know, you, the math teacher and the biology teacher and the English teacher and the school counselor are all sitting around a table thinking about how can we make sure Michael stays on track. The third thing is, and this I think is, is, is particularly appropriate for business owners, is they had to, to shrink the cycle of feedback. So, so let's think conceptually about this. At, at time one, when they were failing 48% of their students, a bunch of kids would drop out. And at that point, there is nothing you can do, right? That's the point of no return. And so the question is, rather than find out after four years who's going to graduate and who's not, all of a sudden, we've got this metric in the freshman year, it, it literally is called the freshman on-track measure, that tells us who's on track and who's not. But even that is too long of a cycle because, you know, if, if they figure out Dan Heath is off track in May of my freshman year, the damage is done, right? I'm off track. The point was they needed more proximate metrics to make sure that I finished the year on track. And so they had to shrink the cycle from annual feedback to week-by-week week feedback. That's where those meetings came in where they were looking at, okay, what, what are Dan's grades this week? And how's his attendance been in the past week? And that would be my advice. If you're paying attention to something at the organizational level, whether it's, it's profits or employee engagement or NPS scores or, or whatever your thing is, figure out a way to shrink that cycle down. Like you don't want to be looking at the profit numbers at the end of the year saying, hey, what went right and what went wrong? It needs to be a weekly conversation or, or at least a monthly conversation because that, that's what's giving you the freedom to navigate differently. All right, what are the experiments we tried last month to try to boost NPS a little bit? What worked, what didn't? And what are we going to try next month? Because that's the way you can iterate more quickly. So that was a mouthful, but, but hopefully that, that uh, added something. That's brilliant. And so, so accurate. So we see this here locally. I'm in Kansas City. We were the last school district to complete desegregation and we have consistently not maintained accreditation. And uh, those, the board and the community would benefit from this book and from this recording in that every couple of years we get rid of the superintendent. And so we're so we're so tunneled the workaround is at such a high level. So we'll just get a new, let's just get a new superintendent. That'll fix the problem. And yeah, no that, exactly. Yeah. Going in, to your point, I want the listeners to highlight and, and make sure they don't miss it is to go shorten that cycle on what is it you're measuring? Is it, is it a leading indicator? Can you actually use it to take some corrective action? Because so many companies, you know, from small to large have so many metrics that they get so excited about. And it doesn't change anything, right? <laughs> Nothing actually changes. I mean, especially if you're looking at them in the rearview mirror, if it's like, you know, after every quarter, you kind of look back and you get excited about some numbers and you moan and groan about other numbers. That's the wrong mental model. The, the right mental model is that data should be a tool for navigation, you know, in, in the same way that you're using Google Maps to get from point to point, like you don't just get a, a postcard at the end saying, did you end up at your destination or not? No, navigation is real time and it's allowing you to make 
turns on an incremental basis to get you closer and closer and closer to where you're trying to go. Yeah, we um, two examples in our industry. One, we we had a consistent turnover issue in a new business, uh, and so we thought it was uh, how we were managing, how we were training, mm-hmm. and, and we zoomed out and kind of went upstream and said, you know, who who are we actually attracting to these positions? And what we found is by being in a local, very small niche of mm-hmm. dentistry and orthodontics, because we were new, all the really successful, happy, engaged enthusiastic employees were, were employed, right? They were already working somewhere else. <laughs> so our ads were attracting all the people who were the opposite of those characteristics. They were unhappy in their job, disengaged. They were floating from job to job. And we started looking at the data on how many times these individuals had changed uh, jobs from mm-hmm. office to office. And then we, you know, looked in the literature and we said, okay, so how does, how does Disney hire? How does uh, Virgin Airlines with Richard Branson, how do they hire? And so we stopped requiring, as we went upstream, we stopped requiring that employees had job experience. And we looked for other attributes like, do they have a good attitude? Mm. <laughs> and they solve problems. And by training them on, so in most states uh, in the U.S., you can train dental assistants. You can certainly train someone who answers your phones. Uh, and, and not saying dental experience required. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, we went upstream and we solved that problem, yeah. I love that example. It's like it, it, experience is not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is the, uh, the the personality traits or or the desire to serve or, or these more intangible aspects. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, another example we had in the in the marketing world, which is what we're known for, we do a lot of um, successful TV and radio and print to drive new patients. Uh, about 70,000 new patients a month we drive uh, just online to our to our clients' offices. And it's so common to say the marketing isn't working, right? So we, so we get better at writing better headlines, and we get better at creating stronger offers, and we get better at uh, the timing and the seasonality and the promotional cadence of all of our mm-hmm, offers. Mm-hmm. And really split testing, uh, using AI to come up with better headlines. <laughs> and then we, we, we went upstream and said, wait no one's answering the phones in these offices during lunch. <laughs> so we missed, you know, 50, 45 uh, easily percent of all the new patient phone calls we were driving to these practices because we never took the time to think whether or not the phone was going to be answered. Something as simple as that. Oh, wow. Yeah. that, and, and that's the kind of thing where, I mean, this is another theme in the book that if you're looking for a leverage point in a system, you know, back to that quote, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. How do you change a system if you're not happy with the results? The answer is you got to get closer to the problem. You got to really wallow in the problem and make sure you understand it. You know, I, I talked to some people who are working on crime in Chicago and, and, and especially homicides uh, among the youth of Chicago. And, uh, and the way that they trained their intuition was they went and read every one of the last 200 medical examiner reports of young people who've been killed because they didn't want to jump to conclusions. They didn't want to think they had the answers before they did. And so they just started from a blank slate, like, hey, let's go look at this up close. Let's like really see case by case what happened in these situations. Why did somebody end up dead? And I think the same thing is true in in lower stakes environments, like with our customers and our employees. Before we start making plans, like let's go make sure we understand what the problem is. Maybe it's not a marketing problem. Maybe it's a no staffers from noon to one problem. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm curious your thoughts on the depth and breadth and time that takes versus today's culture of, you know, we all kind of think, well, we'll just get this done this month. You know, can you use an example of uh, Chicago, maybe how long that took? Oh, it uh, takes it takes forever. I mean, it, yeah. it that's the thing about upstream solutions is is there's there's rarely a quick fix upstream. And and in the book, I I, I try to train people to be very open eyed about that. That that I feel like upstream interventions are ultimately our only chance to make permanent positive differences in our world, organizations, communities, nationally, what have you. But we also need to be very uh, open-eyed about what that entails and the persistence it requires. And so for a, for a small business owner, I think what I'd be thinking about is you can't upstream everything at once because it's too hard, it's too complex, and it moves too slow. You're going to drive yourself crazy. So, you know, upstream one thing at a time. You know, focus on what's the single biggest thing that is an opportunity or a threat to your practice. And if maybe it's on the employee side with with uh, recruiting or engagement or retention, whatever it is. Maybe it's on uh, the patient slash customer side, making them happier. Um, you know, pick one thing and really get into it. You know, shrink the feedback cycles, get more voices of input, try more experiments, uh, make sure you have data to guide your, your work, and, and let it run. I mean, it, it's probably going to take a year or two to make some really meaningful differences. But, but what other choice is there? I mean, if we, if we chase quick fixes, um, it, it's sort of like voluntarily jumping right in that tunnel we've talked about. Yeah, we could, without, on, on both sides of the political aisle, we could, we could send a copy of your book to everyone in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and yeah. maybe we wouldn't have this continuous, uh, oh, the government's going to shut down again because we can't agree on the budget, uh, you know, kind of tunnel vision going on there in, in that area, I would imagine. Right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. Uh, I always ask all of our uh, all of our authors, what's your best leadership advice? Your book is filled with it. You could take a whole semester to teach that. But do you have some uh, some piece of advice you want to leave the listeners with? Yes. And actually, I'm going to go off script a little bit here. I've been talking a lot about uh, the upstream book, but let me uh, bring in a concept from another book called Switch that uh, my brother Chip and I wrote. It's about bright spots. It's about um, in times of change, you know, we can often be depressed by what's not working. Um, but don't forget to look for the, the times when things did work and, and be willing to study them. So what I often find is puzzling about business leaders is they're, they're very instinctive that when something goes wrong, they want to understand why it went wrong. And we've been talking a lot about how do you solve problems. But when things go right, it's like their instinct is to just say, hooray, we, we nailed it. You know, great job, team. But they don't dig in to study successes the same way they study failures. And so just as a tangible example, let's say you're thinking about employee engagement. Naturally, your intention is, is, your attention is drawn to the people who are disengaged. That's where the problem is. But have you spent any time thinking about the employees who are super engaged and really happy and what's different about them? And might you learn something from the way that they approach their role, the kind of work that they do that might be something you could expand to more people on the team or that might in inform your hiring profiles? Um, you know, the same thing on the, on the customer slash patient side. You know, if you, you think about 
the people who you really, really enjoy serving and, and who are good clients of yours, what makes them different? Is there something you could learn about them? Is it something that happened early in the relationship? Is it a different profile of person that might inform the way you market yourself? Uh, so, so that would be what I think is, is a kind of evergreen leadership tool is whenever you feel like you're just in that state where you're dissatisfied with the way things are going and you feel frustrated things aren't moving quickly enough, flip the script and say, hey, wait a second, what is working? Even if it's only 10% of the time, even if it's only 10% of your employees, chances are something's working pretty well and have you really done the due diligence to analyze why? That's bright spots. Wow, so powerful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's um, great advice worth worth uh, just a tr- tremendous amount of value to to our listeners. Uh, I know you're busy. You you have uh, uh, four New York Times bestselling books, soon to be five, I think. <laughs> so, hey, thanks. Um, yeah, tell tell the listeners where they can find more about you, what you're writing, what you're teaching. You can come pay me a visit. I have a site with my brother Chip that's at heathbrothers.com. Heath like the candy bar, Heath or Heath Ledger. And at that site, you can find out more about all of our books. And we also have, I want to highlight, we have uh, a really big resource section where we have tools and frameworks and, and workbooks and podcasts about all of our books that are all free. All you have to do is, is sign up for our newsletter. And we're so lazy, we only send about four newsletters a year. So it's not like you're going to get spammed. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, would, uh, I would recommend that if you're interested in more. Dan, thank you. It's an honor having you on the program. A true pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, please share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com, where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list and action guides for each of the books and authors we interview. As a member of the program, we invite you to send the Burleson Box to your referring doctors and centers of influence. Call us at 1-800-891-7520 to discuss how the Burleson Box has worked for many successful organizations throughout the world. And be sure to listen each month for chances to win fun prizes and practice building resources for you and your team. Until next time, remember the words of Mark Twain who said, A man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time in the Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. 
The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.